when we look at these several ways to meditate, I think it's very important to separate out the practice and results to see the distinction between these two, because it's so often the case as practitioners that we want to practice the results that we get confused about the difference between these two things. We have an idea about what the results are. Someone told us, or perhaps we've had a glimpse of our of ourself. Oh, this is what's possible. And then that glimpse shuts down and then we go, okay, let me do that. Okay. We can't do the results. We can only do the practice. Ken McLeod in his book, wake up to your life. He writes about it this way. He says, we may come to this work because we want to achieve enlightenment, Satori or cosmic consciousness, but the focus on results on what I will achieve or understand is just another form of misperception of separation. Once he says, when the Dalai Lama gave a talk in Los Angeles, a woman asked how long she would have to practice before she experienced results. The Dalai Lama said nothing and just lowered his head into his hands and cried. So I think this is a little bit of a somewhat dramatic Dalai Lama story, but probably this really happened. I imagine Ken might've been there. He lived in Los Angeles at the time, probably witnessed this. And yeah, if for someone that may understand this deeply, like the Dalai Lama, it is sad. It is sad when we start to practice the results because we're just trying to conform our experience with our ideals. We're not actually running the experiment. We're not actually seeing what the experiment leads to. And this is a sure way to suffer and to actually, ironically, not make any progress toward these results. So when I talk about each of these several ways to meditate, keep in mind that distinction between the practice and results. So first, first way is concentration meditation, which is the practice in this way of looking at bringing attention to a single point, practicing, bringing attention to a single point, the result of which is unification. The result of concentration is unification. Mindfulness meditation, the next way, is the practice of noticing sensations in real time. The result of which is clarity. So the practice of noticing sensations in real time and the result of mindfulness is clarity. Heartfulness meditation is the practice of inclining the mind toward opening the heart. Inclining the mind toward opening the heart, not being open-hearted, okay? The result of heartfulness meditation is love, is love. So we hear very confused, we often confuse the practice and results of heartfulness meditation, um, thinking if I'm not loving, I'm not doing it right. No, it just means you're not experiencing the results in this moment. That's okay. That's not the practice. That's not, you can't do anything about that. That's not in your hands. All we can do is the practice. The next way here is inquiry meditation. Inquiry meditation is the practice of using a question as a prompt. The result of which is discovery. Inquiry is the practice of using a question as a prompt in our meditation. And the result of doing the practice is, is a deeper sense of discovery. Awareness meditation, the next way to meditate, is the practice of doing nothing. Yeah, that one's fun. The result of which is indescribable. Okay, the result of awareness practice can't be described. That's how you know you're getting it. Because <laughs> you're like, I don't know how to put this into words. If someone is sitting there telling you exactly what awareness is and they've got all the right words for it, you've got to question whether or not they're getting it. <laughs> okay. Awareness meditation is the practice of doing nothing, the result of which is not describable. Embodiment meditation um, is the next form of meditation, next way we could practice. And this is the practice of inhabiting the body. Basic practices of embodiment is to inhabit the body to make it our home. The result of which is presence. 
So the last way to meditate is what we'll call imaginal meditation. Imaginal meditation is the practice of incorporating subtle imagery and energy of bringing that, working with that in our practice, the result of which is wholeness. So with imaginal meditation, we're working with subtle imagery and energy in our practice, the result of which is wholeness. So I want to talk briefly about each of these ways to drill down into them, to zoom in, to see what each of these ways can teach us. And I also want to do that in a way that honors both the differences and the similarities. So you will see, even as I start to talk about each of these ways, that they're not completely distinct, right? There's ways in which we're talking about them that they bleed over into another way. There is a way in which there are patterns here. We can see patterns of difference, but there's also a lot of blurry edges, what my friend David Chapman would call numinosity. There's both pattern and numinosity. So I want to see if we can hold both. The distinctions can be helpful, but ultimately we have to let them go. So concentration, meditation, bringing attention to a single point. Here Jack Cornfield shares, I think, a really beautiful description of this practice and the potential of this practice. He says, like a powerful telescope, the concentrated mind can open us to vast mystical states, including realms of light, visions, rapture, and illumination. Like, a po like polishing a lens on a microscope, concentration can allow us to see more deeply into the body-mind. And one thing I was confused about for a long time with respect to concentration meditation, I'll share it because I, in case any of you else are feeling that same confusion, that I felt is that for me, I thought that bringing attention to a single point meant something like bringing it to the, to the end of the nostrils or to a kind of small point. And this was confusing because as my own practice of concentration deepened, that wasn't really true for very long. It was like for a while that felt true. Like I'm bringing attention to the small point over and over until it becomes stabilized there. And that is, that is important, but actually as concentration deepens and develops, what happens is that the point becomes bigger. The aperture of our attention actually expands. Once we're able to stabilize attention on a small point, that point wants to get bigger. It wants to expand um, in part because it's boring. It's like no longer interesting to keep your attention on this tiny point. Ooh, what else is here? As that happens, as we expand out, it gets wobbly again. I think I talked about this at the beginning of the retreat. There's a sense of wobbliness and almost feels like you've lost your concentration. But no, that's not concentration. That's stability. You've lost your stability, but it's stability and aperture together that, that describes how concentrated we are. So we go through a process with concentration of stabilizing and then opening. And when we open, it becomes less stable. As Daniel Ingram was explaining to me at one point, and this really helped hammer this point across, no pun intended, he said, the single point of concentration can be a point that includes all points in experience. It can actually open up to where it becomes completely panoramic. Our focus, our attention can rest evenly on the entire field of experience. This is, I think, what was meant most often in the like in the Indian yogic traditions, when they say samadhi, you know, that's, it's this deep kind of samadhi that's all inclusive. It's not just the small point of attention. And concentration is such an important bedrock skill. It applies to every other form of meditation, perhaps except awareness. <laughs> but I actually think they converge as well. Because when you're resting in this open, one pointed attention that includes all the points evenly, you could also say that's awareness, just being. Okay, so let's move on to mindfulness. Talk a little bit about that way. 
there's a natural shift here from concentration to mindfulness that follows the kind of Buddhistic way of practice, right? Where you start with stabilizing the tension and then you apply it, as Jack said, toward investigating, seeing more deeply into the process of body-mind. And I would include also self-other world. We can pay attention to all of these things. But what is mindfulness practice? I'm saying here it's noticing sensations in real time. That's the practice, and it leads to clarity. The opposite of mindfulness, of course, we could say is mindlessness. There's a great book, which is not by a meditation teacher, and for this reason, I think it offers a very unique perspective on mindfulness by Ellen Langer called Mindfulness. And she says a very basic and mindless error that we often make is to take the names we give to products and things as the things themselves. Or she puts it a slightly different way in the same book. She says, mindlessness sets in when we rely too rigidly on categories and distinctions that have been created in the past. So mindlessness is essentially when we take our thoughts and ideas to be the things themselves, to be the sensations that we're experiencing. And as we know, when we start to actually notice what's happening, including noticing thoughts, including paying attention to the sensory dimension of what we're thinking, then we begin to realize that this isn't the case. We gain a kind of clear seeing into this, how this phenomenal experience actually works, how it's constructed moment to moment. Sayada Upandita, one of my teachers in the Mahasi tradition, he said, this illusion of movement and solidity is like a movie. To ordinary perception, it seems full of characters and objects, all the semblances of a world. But if we slow the movie down, we'll see that it's actually composed of separate static frames of film. So this is part of what we do with mindfulness practice. We're noticing experience. And as a result, we're seeing the frames of experience arise with more clarity, more sensory clarity. And we see, oh, this is how it's actually made. We're no longer fixated on the, pro- on the content of experience, on the things. We're noticing the process of how these things come to be, which doesn't necessarily make the things go away, but it sure changes our understanding of the things. So in that sense, it does um, change things. Now, I think when we first started talking about mindfulness, Emily and I, we often would say the practice of mindfulness is noticing what you're noticing in real time, noticing what you're noticing. There's this kind of metacognitive awareness, but we realize that actually it's not that you're noticing what you're noticing exactly. You're actually noticing what you're sensing. The idea with mindfulness is you want to be aware of what's being sensed and that those sensations, the direct sensations are different from the noticing. There's some distinction we can make, again, conceptually. And I think to make that more practical, there's a simple exercise where you can first just notice the sensations in your hands. So take a moment, maybe feel the palms of your hands and notice what these sensations are like. Okay, see what that's like. Now, I want you to instead sense what you're experiencing in the palms of your hand directly. Just sense what's there, sensing. Notice the difference here for a moment. What is that like, sensing directly what's happening versus noticing? could toggle between the two if it's helpful to get a feel notice sensations now sense directly for me when i notice it's like i I feel a little bit more i feel removed a little from what's happening like i i'm taking a perspective on it and i can name it more easily when i'm sensing it's like i'm really sensing and i'm in it i'm immersed It's just something I can't really quite describe 
exactly what it's like. Okay, I told you there's going to be some overlaps between these ways because of awareness, right? The result of which is indescribable. We often talk about mindful awareness, don't we? Dan Siegel, one of my favorite authors, because he really explores directly the interpersonal aspect of meditation and the biologic, the biology of that, how we actually are wired together. He, in one teaching, he talks about this difference between noticing and sensing. I largely credit him for us making this distinction, including it, how we describe mindfulness. He said, there's a huge debate about what mindfulness is. Is it sensing or noticing? Intention on focusing on the breath, for example, requires, he says, differentiation of noticing versus sensing. He says, you can use the noticing circle circuit to disengage the distraction and then use the sensing circuit to re-engage your focus. And here he's talking about biological circuit circuits, right? certain kinds of aspects of our biology that work together. And when they're active, they, you could say they form a circuit. And these are things that you can actually see in our biology. So we've got these two different ways of perceiving, noticing and sensing, and they work together. We can get lost in sensing. That's what happens when we get lost in thought. We're just lost in sensing. We're just absorbed in sensing, right? That's why mindfulness is so important because then we can become aware and disengage from whatever it is that we've been absorbed in, which is often a very small sliver of what's actually happening in experience. So these things work together. If we just sit back and notice everything, we'll stay removed from everything. You know, it's like we dissociate from experience if we take mindfulness just to be noticing. The noticing is in service of the sensing. And we want to notice what we're sensing. Like in the noting practice, right? We're using a word or two often in these practices to just describe out loud, to note what we're sensing. The purpose of the noting is not to get good at describing our experience, although I think that can be helpful uh, for various reasons. Rather, the purpose is to bring us in, into more direct contact to see more clearly what is happening. And this does lead to more clarity. As we develop our mindfulness capacity, we see with such often utter clarity what's arising moment to moment. I remember one of my first retreats. This is the first time I was so still and so attentive to what was happening that I noticed the intention to think, the sense of about to thinkness. It's like a bubble rising up as an impulse. And then the bubble would turn into a thought. And for a while in my practice, I just was like watching these bubbles fizzing up from the mind and being noticed right there in their arising, in their about to arise even. And sometimes they would just pop right there, like little bubbles popping on the surface of the soda. So profound, right? To see what we think is real, to actually watch it be born to not be the thinker, to see clearly that's not who we really are, not ultimately. Yes, at times we become that. Interesting, right? That we can be, uh, become one with a thought or with an idea or with our lover or with the object of meditation. I think that's a feature, not a bug, but it can become a bug <laughs> when it's too small, when it's too limited. We don't see clearly how vast this really is. So this is mindfulness practice. In the practice of heartfulness meditation, as I said, it was inclining the mind toward opening the heart, the result of which is love. Also in the Buddhist tradition, it's called loving kindness, right? Or loving awareness. I like how Helen Shuckman puts it in A Course in Miracles, where she says, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you've built against it. I think this is another way of saying inclining the mind toward opening the heart. To do that, we have to work with the barriers, the things that prevent us from noticing 
this vaster space of love that's present. And we have to love the barriers, actually. That's the whole, that is the invitation in heartfulness practice, to love the things that we perceive initially as problems. Pain in the body, is, this is often a barrier to love. But when we can accept and embrace that this is part of our experience, even after we've done everything we can to relieve it on a relative level, we've taken good care of our body, we eat, you can do all the right things and still there will be pain. Can we love that? Can we learn how to embrace that and include that as part of our human experience? Anger, that for me is like one of the main barriers to, to love. And for me, it's been so helpful to recognize that there's wisdom in anger. There's a reason that anger is present. Anger often arises when there's some sense of a boundary violation, when there's some sense of not being respected or honored in some way that's important. And so anger arises in order to protect us. Now, of course, it also burns us and everyone is directed at it. It's, a, it's okay. Maybe only use that one when you need it. Because uh, you can burn down the house, as I've done many times. Um, I grew up in a house where there's a tremendous amount of anger present. And uh, I think the reasons for that go deep. A lot of them have to do with some core wounding going back in my family, my mom's side of the family at least, which is who I grew up with, back to this deep trauma in my grandfather's life of, of having to leave his home as a 15-year-old in, Pal in Palestine at gunpoint. And later he shared with me that his father, my great-grandfather, Sido Ahmed, had to actually, he was tasked by the British soldiers who were occupying their land at the time to actually carry the, his, carry the bodies of his dead villagers into a mass grave and just and dump them. And this is heavy shit. And when you start your formative adult life, or even before that, like, from this place and don't have this, the resources, the skills, you're just trying to survive. Of course, there's going to be trauma. And of course, that's going to come out in all kinds of ways as abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. I've learned from my family system has all of these in spades and many of ours do. This isn't limited to someone who's experienced cultural genocide. All of us have these things in our past and we all have to work with them. So these are the barriers that we're inheriting. How do we work with anger? One is like recognizing, yeah, actually there's some wisdom in it. There's some reason it's here. It's not like a mistake or it's not like I have done something wrong per se. It's just, it's perhaps there's more skillful ways that we can work with these things by first embracing them, seeing, oh yeah, this is trying to protect me from what? usually from a deep well of hurt and pain, um, from deep wounding, from our own sense of lack and unworthiness that is almost too scary to, to touch. I found myself in this place yesterday when we were in the small group together. I was feeling physically really unwell. And then all of a sudden, emotionally, all of these things converged. It was like a, I'm sure you've experienced this at least once on this retreat, maybe multiple times. <laughs> Like when we make space for this stuff and we open, it, it presents itself. It wants to be known. It wants to be felt. It wants to be liberated in the space of loving awareness. Loving kindness, Sharon Salzberg says, is the priceless treasure that enlivens us and brings us into intimacy with ourselves and others. It's the force of love that will lead beyond fragmentation, loneliness, and fear. And I think this is incredibly true, uh, and it's part of why I trust the Dharma so much. It's because I've seen for myself time and again that even in my worst, even in my moments of most fear and loneliness and unworthiness, there is the potential for love. There is this potential uh, to come into more intimate contact with the pain and vulnerability of being human, and that that coming into contact with it, feeling it directly, brings us into intimacy, brings us into love. 
softens our hearts. This is the practice of heartfulness. Now, inquiry meditation, this is a form of meditation. I didn't really get this as directly in my early training in the Theravada or Insight School of Buddhism. It was there, but it was like mentioned here or there. Some teachers would drop in inquiry questions from time to time. I think I mentioned one earlier in the retreat. What in this moment is truly lacking? Nice mindful inquiry, right? What in this moment is truly lacking? But I didn't start to really get how this was a formal practice until I started reading Ramana Maharshi's book, Who Am I? And in starting to work with Kenneth Folk, he'd worked on some inquiry questions, especially self-inquiry. And then getting into Zen and starting to read about Zen, there's all these koans that include questions or inquiry questions. And I started to fall in love with inquiry at a certain point, which looking back, it makes a lot of sense because I like to contemplate things with the mind. And questions, when we formulate them as a question, right? Who are you? What is this? What is love? What in this moment is truly lacking? All of these questions, they're not questions like, what is two plus two? It's a different kind of question. It's a question that doesn't have a rational answer to it that you could verify with someone else as this is the correct answer. Although it's funny in the Zen tradition, the koan system actually does claim that there are answers, correct answers to these questions. <laughs> Dude, that makes you gotta wonder. But it turns out, I've done a little koan practice. It turns out that not everyone answers it the same. So. I remember I was working on this koan, which is an inquiry question with David Loy. We were living in the same neighborhood at the time, and got, I got a chance to hang out with him a lot, go on walks together in the mountains around the lake, Wonderland Lake. And uh, one of the initial questions in the Zen koan tradition is, what is the sound of one hand? Sometimes it's, what is the sound of one hand clapping? I worked with it. What is the sound of one hand? I'm about to give you the answer to the koan. <laughs> I'll also, I'll share you how I answered and I'll share how he responded to the answer. So he asked me, what is the sound of one hand? And I responded. And he said, huh, interesting. And he said, this is how I would say it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And what was the difference? Like, it was a little more like, Fierce. I was just like, he was like, oh, like ch chop, karate chop or something. And I was like, oh, cool. It is essentially the same answer, right? What is the sound of one hand? There it is. So these questions, they bring us deeper into our experience. They have us look at things in a different way. And it's important that as we do that, we're patient with the process. Some koans take many years to, to resolve. As Rainer Maria Rilke, the great German poet said, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers, ah, practice and results, which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions, he says, live the questions. Become one with the question. That's the point of Zen, koan practice. You become one with the koan, and then you can embody it in response. You can be it, and that's the answer to the koan, is to become it. And to do that, we also have to become familiar with and comfortable with not knowing, with uncertainty. Because we're talking about a shift in our orientation and understanding of what's actually happening of what things are. And this shift requires a period of letting go into not knowing and then coming from not knowing. I always love when I see these, this deep perennial wisdom expressed in other places, like it's not just coming from the Buddhist tradition, for instance, because that tells me, oh, this is, more, this is universal. This is something that transcends any particular approach. And that means it's more interesting. It's more, more actually to the point. So I don't know if any of you remember the, the AMC 
special called Mad Men, the show, where Don Draper, uh, the ad executive, is with his mentee, Peggy. And she's asking in this scene about what the job is that they're doing. What is this advertising job? Like, what is essentially about? And as they're talking, at some point, as Don is trying to describe it to her, his understanding, he says, that's the job. And she says, what's the job? And Don says, living in the not knowing. Living in the not knowing. And you can think about that with creativity. It's so important. And that's, I think, what he's essentially pointing to, or that the writers of that show are pointing to, is that creativity and novel ways of thinking and seeing arise in not knowing, from not knowing. Suzuki Roshi famously talked about the beginner's mind and how the possibilities in the beginner's mind are endless. It's only the expert's mind that limits what can be said or known. And of course, the beginner versus expert is not a distinction that is bestowed upon us. It is an orientation we take. We can be called an expert and still act like a beginner. We can be called a beginner and still live in this not knowing. So this is the practice of inquiry meditation. Using a question as a prompt for discovery. It's the result. Now, awareness meditation, the next way to meditate. As I said before, awareness meditation is the practice of doing nothing. The result of which is ineffable. It's not describable. Actually, Zen Young has a great way of formalizing the ineffable. <laughs> he has a practice called do nothing. And here's the way that he describes how to do nothing. He says, uh, when you notice your intention to control your attention, drop the intention. When you notice the intention to control your attention, drop it. That's a way in to doing nothing. That isn't the practice of doing nothing. It's a way to find ourselves doing nothing. Sometimes that works. Sometimes we, by trying to follow those instructions, we notice that we're trying to control our attention. Okay, let that go. Stop doing nothing. <laughs> what is awareness really about? The view from awareness, you could say from the top of the mountain of awareness is that everything, this is from Suzuki Roshi again, in his Zen mind, beginner's mind, he says that everything is included within your mind is the essence of mind. That everything is already included in your mind. That's the essence of mind. Tony Packer, another Zen teacher, she writes about this, I think, in a beautiful way as well in a book called The Silent Question, where she says, there's no need for awareness to turn anywhere. It's here. Everything is here in awareness. When there is a waking up from fantasy, there's no one who does it. I remember in my practice starting to understand this clearly. This was maybe in relative terms. This was in 2011. I was living in Los Angeles at the time with Emily, where we were training with Trudy Goodman and her community inside LA. Emily was also working there, managing a grant for the VA hospital system, and they're incorporating mindfulness practice. And I remember at a certain point in the tiny earthquake trap of an apartment that we lived in, uh, <laughs> that I was starting to become aware of this moment of returning, of when you're lost in thought, and then there's this returning. I started to notice the way that there was an additional adding on a little subtle beratement that was happening. Oh, like, like hitting myself a little, gosh, how could you do that again to lose the object? And I started to notice in that like self beratement was this sense of taking responsibility 
for being lost and taking responsibility for returning. It was like I was injecting myself into the process. And as this awareness started to dawn, it started to dissolve slowly, gradually, but surely. And there was a, in, in its place was a recognition that this is all just happening by itself. That I didn't have to do anything to assure that I would return from my fantasies. In fact, I couldn't avoid return. Try to avoid coming back from a thought. That's what jhana practice is from a certain point of view. It's like developing these subtle states of consciousness that eventually we have to return back from, back to this. And so I started to trust actually that awareness is something that's always already here. It's not something I have to construct. It's not a thing. Hafiz. In his mystical poetry says, just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. Or your separation from God, from the ultimate, from love, is the hardest work in this world. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's actually the hard, it's really hard to not be present. That's the real hard work. And that's the habit that we're in is trudging, efforting, trying to develop this constant discipline really of control, controlling our experience. That when we let go of that control, yes, it's scary, but that's only from the point of view of the one who wants it to be a certain way from the ego view, that's where it's scary. But the cool thing is this fear, the fear of groundlessness is itself groundless. We can notice it's like this. Fear is like this. With embodiment meditation, we're engaging in the practice, as I said, of inhabiting the body. And this is different from being mindful of the body. I think that's an important distinction, especially for those of us who've done in mindfulness practice. Mindfulness of the body is one of the core foundations in Buddhist uh, Vipassana meditation. And so a lot of people have this as an experience, but this is different. Here, I want to describe the difference by using the words of Reggie Ray, one of the teachers I've learned the most about embodiment from. And this is from a program or book called Somatic Descent. True awareness is inclusive. It has a different feel. That feel is literally one of embodiment. It is a way of being you can only surrender into not get. You feel grounded in your body, rooted and anchored. And yet what you are anchored in is ironically the boundless. When we try to enter the state through bypassing the body, the feel of the awareness is that we are somehow floating like a headless body, no rooting, no grounding, no sense of being here. When we enter through the body, though, we do feel here. Though now the here often tends to feel like everywhere. So with embodiment, we're not trying to look at the body from a dissociated place from our head. We're actually working on distributing attention through the body such that it's a kind of decentralized realization of embodiment. Judith Blackstone, another excellent embodiment teacher, she developed what's called the realization process that one of our Buddhist geeks teachers, Ryan Olke, teaches as a senior teacher of. 
she describes embodiment in this way. She says, inhabiting the body is not the same as being aware of the body. It's not a top-down experience. Inhabiting the body means that we live within our body, that we're present throughout the whole internal space of the body. It means that we feel that we are made of consciousness everywhere in our body. And as she points out, just like Reggie did, this consciousness that's inside the body is also outside the body. The internal and the external become one with embodiment, true embodiment. The result of embodiment is presence. Awareness without embodiment lacks, as Reggie said, that sense of hereness of presence. I, I woke up to awareness without including the body. And then my task over many years was to reincorporate or to include the body in this awareness. And that's often the case, not for everyone, because people have different ways through this journey, the different paths they take. And then always the journey is about retracing your steps and finding, actually understanding the whole journey better. In terms of where this journey has taken me, Emily, I'm going to talk about our experience here together in this building, this model and being partners in this thing. Uh, what has emerged in recent years has been the imaginal meditation. I first remember hearing about this explicitly be called imaginal meditation by a teacher in the insight tradition named Rob Berbea. And he was one of the few insight teachers I know who really took the beauty, the beautiful things from the insight tradition and, and started to build kind of whole new formulation of Dharma on top of that, uh, which he called soul making Dharma. A lot of folks are very interested in that work and I've seen it. A lot of people get benefit from it, although it's not something I've explored super deeply. But you also see it in other places, such as in the Vajrayana tradition and the practice of deity yoga, where you're imagining different enlightened qualities as beings and then working with those beings or becoming one with them, imagining yourself become one, say with Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva compassion. And this is a beautiful practice. It's in a very traditional way of realizing enlightened qualities in yourself. For me, I think actually my first, this is true, my first introduction to meditation, formal practice in this lifetime came from my aunt Janan. And it was during a course that she taught out of her living room. And it was a series of guided meditations, guided imaginal meditations, in which we were imagining a particular sort of cord, a grounding cord coming out of the base of the spine and going down into the earth. And then we'd go on these journeys, these subterranean imaginal journeys that would last like 40, 45 minutes. I was 13 at the time. And I loved it. I thought it was so cool, part because the experience was cool, but also because I got a lot of praise at the end. Anytime you're like a young person interested in things that like not a lot of young people do, you get tons of praise from adults. <laughs> so I love that. And, uh, and I had a, yeah, I had a natural proclivity toward it. I could do it. And it led to some deep openings, actually. This is my first spiritual openings came as a result of doing these practices as a young teenager. I also later in life began to work with a therapist named David Chernikoff, who was an insight teacher. And he also had trained in Gestalt therapy. And one of the methods I found most helpful for doing shadow work of like re reintegrating, re-inhabiting different parts of myself was Gestalt dream work in which he would invite me to take notes on what had happened in the dream. That's something I was familiar with for a while from dream yoga. And so I, I could do that. And then he'd, say, he'd say, bring in your notes and he'd guide me through a, a sort of an imaginal practice in which I remembered everything up to the very end of the dream. And then I would let the rest of the dream unfold in imagination. And I'd describe it to him what happened after. And then he would invite me to 
inhabit different dream characters, different characters in the dream by going physically into the different parts of the room, taking a posture, like becoming one with different characters in the dream. And I, <laughs> at first I thought this sounded like ridic a little ridiculous, <laughs> but as Carl Jung says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And this for me was so true in this practice that it wasn't just I'm imagining myself as, a, as an enlightened being, I was actually inhabiting these different parts of the self that were represented as characters in the dream. I remember the, one dream, it was this like crazy, incredible monster, like super scary. And I became one with the monster. And of course, at that point, I started just breaking down and sobbing. It's like this like wounded inner child who becomes a monster in order to protect itself back to anger. And this catharsis of like actually inhabiting my own inner child, not seeing it as a scary other, but actually becoming one with it. This is the process of healing or becoming whole. And imaginal meditation, so much of it is, a, it's really the result of the practice is wholeness. When we're incorporating the subtle imagery and subtle energetic aspect of our experience, working with that, including that as part of the practice, it's like we're inviting a kind of a deeper refinement and expansion of our own consciousness to include more. Here, Chagyam Trungpa, I think he talks about the subtle realm of experience, of perception this way. He says in Shambhala, the sacred path of the warrior, he says, you experience a vast realm of perceptions unfolding. There is unlimited sound, unlimited sight, unlimited taste, unlimited feeling, and so on. The realm of perception is limitless, so limitless that perception itself is primordial, unthinkable, beyond thought. There are so many perceptions that they are beyond imagination. There are a vast number of sounds. There are sounds that you have never heard. There are sights and colors that you've never seen. There are feelings that you've never experienced before. There are endless fields of perception. So with imaginal practice, we are tapping into this endless fields of perception, uh, and especially of subtle perception. We're experiencing things we've never experienced before. And I think it's interesting to note that we can do this both in a kind of top-down way, like where we can have an intention. We want to imagine something or follow some instruction like I was doing with David in the Gestalt work, or it can be something that it really arises from below, like from unconsciousness. And this is also like I was doing with David. I was bringing in this imagery and these subtle feeling states that came from the dream state and then working with them in a top-down way. So with imaginal practice, how we work can be both top-down and bottom-up with imagery. We can intentionally incline toward a particular practice. Lately, I've been really enjoying the imaginal practice called Feeding Your Demons. It's a practice developed by Lama Sultram Alion, Tibetan teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And it's really about learning to imagine different aspects of yourself that you call demons. Young, I think we'd call shadows and then learning how to actually find out what they really need and to feed them that, to give them that, to, to nourish our demons. This practice leads to wholeness. It leads to including more of this vast realm of perception into our experience. So these are the several ways to meditate given a little bit of an overview of each. If we had another talk on this, I would go into and talk about the ways that they start to interrelate or how we can bring these together. Some of you I know have experience working with practices that transcend the boundaries of one of these ways. They're actually like combinations of the ways and how ultimately as we become form more familiar with meditation in all of its forms, we start to recognize what all of these forms have in common where they point to. You may already sense that in this talk and in your own experience, you may already know that. 
the Tibetans have a term for this. They call it the experience of one taste. That all experience has the same quality or taste, regardless of what we're doing with our awareness or not doing, uh, regardless of the technique that we're following. All experience is, as Suzuki Roshi said, the essence of mind. It's all included, is the essence. That essence has one taste. And it's not the taste of something. It's the taste of isness, of suchness, of what it is like. And this to me is ultimately what we're doing these practices for, is to realize this suchness that transcends and includes all the differences between these styles. And then we're free to enter back into the world of difference, knowing that these things are not ultimately different, seeing instead that they're skillful means. Which form of meditation is right for this person right now, for me, for you? We can become much more skillful when we begin to understand that there isn't a correct path up the mountain, that there are just paths, and that actually it's more interesting to explore the whole terrain of our experience than it is to get to the top. Because getting to the top is just a temporary part of the journey, something that we do again and again. If you, get, if you like hiking, you're right, you don't just go hike one time, get to the top and you're done. I'm done hiking. <laughs> no. Constantly, hopefully, going back out, exploring new peaks, enjoying the ones we've been to before. And it's an ongoing journey. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.